Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, Mark Mitchell, who's a pastor in California, shares how at one point in his ministry, he was moved by the writings of three Christian authors. Well, one of these authors was Eugene Peterson, and maybe you've heard the name Eugene Peterson before. For the longest time, he was a prolific spiritual writer. He since passed away, but at the time, he was still living. And so Mitchell decided to write a letter to each of these three authors whose writings he was moved by, uh, just expressing gratitude and appreciation for their incredible work. Well, within a few weeks' time, he received responses back from two of the authors, but he waited for his response from Eugene Peterson. Weeks went by, months went by, almost a year went by, and he did not receive a response back from Eugene Peterson. He grew frustrated and resentful. He concluded that this person who had written so beautifully, so eloquently about being an unbusy pastor was simply too busy or too important to write him back. Well, sometime later, he was speaking to a group of pastors, and he recounted this experience, how he had been moved by the writings of three authors, how he had written three letters, how he had received responses back from two of the writers, but not from Eugene Peterson. Well, there was a woman in attendance who happened to be a good friend of Eugene Peterson, and she said, I'm actually scheduled to see him in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to bring this up to try to see what happened. Well, sometime later, he received a handwritten letter from Eugene Peterson. In the letter, Eugene Peterson explained what happened, that he had received Mark's letter, that he had written a reply, but in the process of trying to mail it, he lost the envelope with the return address. And he actually kept the reply on his desk for a whole year, praying to God each day that he would somehow find the address so that he could finally send the reply. Well, when Mark Mitchell heard that, how do you think he felt? He felt convicted. He apologized to Peterson for the hasty judgment that he had made. Well, folks, let's be honest. We humans can be a judgmental bunch, can't we? More judgmental than we often realize. And so frequently, like in that story, our judgments are misguided, they're premature, and so in our culture, we are warned about the pitfalls of passing judgment. And even Jesus in Scripture, he warned us against judgment. But is judgment an activity that is always negative? Is judgment an activity that is always negative? Is judgment an activity that the church should entirely abandon and give up on? Can there be forms of good judgment, appropriate judgment, even holy judgment? These are the questions that I want to explore with you today. Now, we are currently in the third segment of our five-part sermon series entitled, it's up here on the screen, You Keep Using That Bible Verse, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. 
inspired in part by the 1987 movie Princess Bride, in which the word inconceivable is misused, misapplied time and again, our aim, our purpose in these messages is to examine commonly misused Bible verses and to better understand the context behind these verses. Well, in previous messages, we explored Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. As well as Philippians 4.13, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Well, today's Bible verse that we're going to look at, also prone to misuse and misinterpretation, revolves around passing judgment. It's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Let's read this together. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. Well, even if you are sitting here today, or worshiping online, and you're not that acquainted with the Bible, you are probably familiar with this verse. People nowadays typically reference Matthew 7, 1, when others raise questions about their decisions or their behavior, and they find themselves feeling defensive. Well, you can't raise these questions about my decisions or my behavior because you need to read what Jesus says in Scripture. Jesus says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do we have any poker players here today? Well, in our culture, Matthew 7-1 has become akin to holding the winning hand in a poker game. Do you know what I'm talking about? People raise questions about something that we said, something that we did, something that we decided that makes us defensive, we get uncomfortable, we feel as if our back is up against the wall, so what do we do? We lay our cards on the table by citing Matthew 7-1, you can't touch me. Jesus says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. But here's the question we have to wrestle with today. Does Matthew 7-1 completely reject all forms of judgment, implying that we are never in a position to assess decisions or behavior? Well, if that's the case, there is a lot that we have to rethink as a society. Isn't there? For example, let's say after worship today, I'm driving home, and let's say that the speed limit is 45 miles an hour, but I'm driving 70 miles an hour. I'm driving 25 miles over the speed limit, and so one of Maitland's finest pulls me over, writes me a speeding ticket. Well, I suppose I should say to the officer, you know, officer, by writing me that speeding ticket, you are actually judging my behavior. You are deeming my speeding to be bad and inappropriate, and clearly you need to go back and read the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. How do you think that would go over? <laughs> not too well. He might write me a second ticket for that. Or let's say I commit a serious crime, and I'm arrested, and so I'm brought before a judge. Well, maybe I should say to the judge, you know, judge, your position is wholly inappropriate. How dare you sit up there on a bench and judge what I did? Or how dare you put me in front of a jury of my peers and have the jury judge me? Go back and read Matthew 7.1. It says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Or let's say I stop showing up to work here at Asbury, even though I'm still employed by this congregation, and I'm still one of the appointed pastors here. And so our leadership team grows concerned and comes to me and says, Chris, What's going on? you got to do your job. 
We're going to hold you accountable. Well, maybe I should say to our leadership team, you know, accountability involves assessing behavior. Assessing behavior is a type of judgment. Go read Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. One more example. Let's say I decide to show up as a contestant on American Idol. Have you ever watched American Idol before? And I sing the way that I do, which honestly is not very good at all. And one of the judges, Simon Cowell, you ever heard of Simon Cowell? Reacts this way. Some of you look like this when I preach. He just buries his face in his hands, and then he finally speaks up and says, Chris, what are you doing? You should not be on the show. You are a terrible singer. You are the worst singer in the world. You will never win a Grammy. You will never sign a record deal. You will never be a celebrity singer. Well, maybe I should say to Simon Cal, Simon, you're hurting my feelings. Not that he would care about that. You're judging me. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge others, and you will not be judged Obviously, I am being playful, aren't I? I am being facetious with all these examples, but I'm doing this to illustrate a point. Some judgment is okay, isn't it? Some judgment is fine and appropriate. The question is, what kind of judgment was Jesus warning us about when he said in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge others and you will not be judged? Well, as we've said in previous sermons, and actually, we've said this not just in this series, but in other sermons that have been preached here. Understanding and interpreting Scripture relies heavily on what? Starts with the letter C. Context. Understanding and interpreting Scripture relies heavily on context. And the context for this statement about judgment in Matthew 7-1 is a sermon that Jesus delivered. The most well-known sermon that any preacher has ever delivered and that would be the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount begins at the beginning part of Matthew 5 and continues through the end of chapter 7. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, spanning three chapters. And do you know why we call it the Sermon on the Mount? Because Jesus literally climbs up a mountain. He sits down. Back then, whenever a rabbi sat down, it meant that the rabbi was engaging in some serious teaching that people needed to listen, right, and pay attention to. And so he sat down, and then he addresses the disciples who were gathered there to listen to him. And a key aspect of the Sermon on the Mount involves Jesus' critique of religious officials who were practicing their faith in ways that simply were not sincere, when they practiced their faith, when they engaged in religious practices, it was all for show, it was to get attention, it was to get other people to notice them. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a very specific name for these religious officials. He calls them hypocrites. Can you say that word with me? Hypocrites. Nowadays, when we call somebody a hypocrite, we mean the person says one thing and does another. And that definition is true. But in Jesus' day, the word hypocrite also had another meaning. See, hypocrites back then were performers, people who put on a performance, who put on a show. And that's what Jesus is saying these religious leaders are doing. They're putting on a show. And he tells the disciples not to be like them. Listen to what he says here in Matthew 6. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do. That's verse 2. And then he says in verse 5, when you pray... Don't be like thee. And then verse 16, and when you fast, 
Don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. Now, not only were these religious officials really good at showing off, but they were also pretty good when it came to judging people who did not meet the lofty standards that they had set. They were pretty good when it came to judging people who did not meet the lofty standards that they had set, and yet in so many ways, they weren't meeting these standards either. Which is why later in this gospel, in chapter 23, what does Jesus say? He says, I want you to do as these religious leaders say, but not as they do. Because in so many ways, they're not abiding by their own teaching. Navex Global is a company that brands itself as the ethics and compliance experts. And yet six years ago in 2018, Navex Global found itself in a heap of trouble for engaging in what the state of Oregon deemed unethical behavior. Here's what happened. There was an employee who worked for this company, and the employee was summoned for jury duty. Anybody ever been summoned for jury duty? And so the employee went to go serve as a juror and had to miss work to fulfill that responsibility, which state law protects, doesn't it? But what happened? Well, Navex Global got frustrated with this employee for missing work and terminated the employee. Consequently, the state of Oregon imposed a fine of nearly $150,000. It's pretty ironic that a company that prides itself in ethics and compliance faced such a large fine for engaging in an unethical firing. Double standards are frustrating, aren't they? And that's what was happening here in the Gospel of Matthew, these double standards. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus criticizes these religious officials for showing off, but then in chapter 7, he also criticizes them for harsh and unnecessary judgment. And so this is the larger context of his statement about judgment. This is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye, Jesus goes on to say. When you have a log in your own, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Here's that word again, hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. In this passage, Jesus takes up a very specific type of judgment, a very particular kind of judgment, one that offends God and goes against the gospel. You know what judgment he really criticizes here? What you and I might call judgmentalism. Can we say this together? Judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is carried out with the spirit of hypocrisy. Judgmentalism involves holding other people to a standard that we're not willing to hold ourselves to, which is why Jesus says in verse 2, the standard that you judge others by is the standard by which you will be judged. Judgmentalism also involves telling other people what they've done wrong while ignoring your own faults and your own hang-ups. And unfortunately, and I don't need to tell you this, you already know this to be true, Judgmentalism is something that we Christians are commonly known for. 
that in truth there are reasons for that. When I was in my first year of college, I had a roommate who was not a Christian. He knew that I was a Christian. He knew that I wanted to be a pastor. He knew that I wanted to go to seminary after college. And sometimes at night before we would go to bed, he would ask me about the Bible. He would ask me questions about my faith, about my call, why I wanted to be a pastor. He didn't necessarily agree with my beliefs, but he was always kind to me and respectful. Well, one night, it was the end of our first year of college. We were all going to go our separate ways during the summer, and we wanted to celebrate the end of finals and exams, and so there was a large group of people that was going to dinner. Now, for the most part, my roommate and I ran in different social circles, but this group of people that were going to dinner, they were the people that I hung out with, that I spent time with. For the most part, they were involved in campus ministry at the college, just like I was. And so I said to my roommate, I'm going to dinner. We're going to go out to eat with this larger group of people. I would love it if you would come. And he said, okay. But when we got to the restaurant, and there must have been about 20 or 25 people there, I noticed how out of his element my roommate was. I quickly noticed how uncomfortable he was. Especially when, quite frankly, he was the way that he normally was. As he was talking, he said a few swear words. Nothing over the top, but that's kind of how he spoke. And then also he began to talk openly about his own beliefs, his own convictions, which were different from the beliefs and the convictions of people around that table. And so people around the table began to be unkind, uncharitable, and then finally got to the point that they stopped engaging him, stopped talking to him, started ignoring him. And unfortunately, as somebody who was about 19 years old, I lacked the courage in that moment to really call out that behavior. I saw it, but I didn't say anything about it. We were driving back in the car, and he turned to me and he said, Chris, why would I ever go to one of those campus ministries if people there are going to treat me like that? And I didn't know what to say. And then finally I just spoke up and I said, you know what? I'm sorry. And I really can't blame you. Judgmentalism is toxic. It puts us on a platform above other people. And instead of drawing people closer to God, which is what we're called to do, it pushes them further and further from God, like what happened with my roommate. But folks, and this is really crucial for us to recognize, in denouncing judgmentalism, and judgmentalism should be denounced, in denouncing judgmentalism, Jesus does not denounce all forms of judgment. He does not denounce all forms of judgment. If Jesus denounces all forms of judgment, then he actually contradicts himself in this sermon. Because, check out what he says later on. This is Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. 
Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify, say this with me, people by their actions. People by their actions. Let me ask this a question. How on earth are we supposed to identify people by their actions without engaging in discernment? And discernment is a form of what? It's a form of judgment. But the judgment Jesus talks about here in these verses is different than judgmentalism, isn't it? It's not carried out with a posture of arrogance and superiority. It's carried out with a posture of humility. It starts by taking the plank out of our own eye. And we've all got planks in our eyes, don't we? Recognizing our own faults, our own hang-ups, our own sins, our own issues, our own need to receive God's grace and God's forgiveness. Only then, and only then, are we in a position to hold other people accountable. The truth is, the church needs and Scripture calls for, Jesus himself calls for in this gospel. He speaks about this in Matthew 18. The church needs, and Scripture calls for, systems of accountability. Because we all have blind spots. We all have deficiencies. We're all prone to sin. Left unchecked and unexamined, our sin can manifest in ways that we don't even see, that we don't even recognize. That's why we need a degree of judgment in the church. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. Not judgmentalism. We don't need that at all. But judgment. In other words, we need people who love us. We need people who care about us. We need people who are invested in us, who have a relationship with us, and who are courageous enough to speak God's truth to us. When our ways are our actions, our behaviors aren't reflecting the purposes of God, the purposes to which we've been called. During my time in seminary, I had a professor who for many years served in local church ministry. Well, at one point, he was serving as the lead pastor of a large church. And one night, he was having a meeting with his staff parish relations committee. Now, if you're not familiar with how United Methodist churches operate, the staff parish relations committee is essentially the church's personnel committee, human resources committee. The committee holds pastors and staff accountable because we all need accountability, don't we? Well, during this meeting with the staff parish, they were discussing the affairs of the church. And then suddenly, one of the committee members spoke up and said something that my professor was not expecting. Ken, are you mad at us? He was perplexed, and he said, man, what are you talking about? Can you clarify? Well, I've been noticing in some of your sermons 
you seem to be angry and yelling like you're upset with us. And then other committee members began to nod their heads in agreement. You know, if one person says something, you're not really sure, but if a lot of people agree about something, that tells you that something is up. You need to pay attention. And then other committee members started talking about it, and they said, you know, Ken, we love you, we care about you, you're our pastor, we're committed to you. We want the best for you, not just in your ministry here at the church, but in your personal life, in your relationship with God. We would love for you to explore this matter with somebody. Well, fortunately, there was a psychiatrist at the church who offered his services for free. And so he sat down with the psychiatrist. They were sitting out on a porch talking about this whole matter, and the psychiatrist said, yes, I too have heard this angry edge when you preach. And as they were exploring this, they discovered the source of the anger. You see, my professor had grown up in great poverty, and he was serving a church with ample financial resources, which led to feelings of guilt. Unconsciously, he didn't even realize he was doing this. He was projecting that guilt onto the congregation, which is why people heard that angry tone as he preached. He was angry, but not primarily at them. Who was he really angry at? Himself and the guilt that he was dealing with. Well, once he understood that, with the help of that staff parish, the support of that psychiatrist, and of course with the grace of God, my professor underwent a transformative process to address and correct that behavior so that he could become the follower of God that he was meant to be and the pastor that he was meant to be. That's what good judgment looks like. Holding each other accountable. Even us pastors, we need it. So that all of us in turn become the women and the men that God wants us to be. I end my sermon with these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian in the 20th century. He specialized in Christian community, and he said this at one point. Nothing could be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing could be more compassionate than the severe reprimand. Now, when Bonhoeffer says severe reprimand, I know that sounds pretty intense, but I think what he means is the serious reprimand. In other words, we take this seriously. The severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. That's our charge. That's our assignment. To call one another from sin, from brokenness, and toward God. The only one who can liberate us from all sin in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, please forgive us when we exercise bad judgment, when we engage in forms of judgmentalism. All of us do this. But God, remind us that even as we repent of judgmentalism, that there can be good judgment. You spoke about this kind of good judgment. It's good to discern. 
It's good to be cautious, and it is good once we have removed the plank from our own eye and dealt with our own sin to hold one another accountable so that we might become the disciples that you want us to be. So God, help us to practice this good judgment, this holy judgment. Give us the grace and the wisdom that we need. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.